Well, good morning. We're in week three of our series, Questioning Christianity, where we've been tackling objections to the Christian faith. And I mentioned there was a study by the Barna Group about 10 years ago, and they asked several non-Christians why they rejected Christianity. And the top three reasons were because Christians are anti-homosexual. We'll cover that in a few weeks. Christians are judgmental. We'll cover that this morning. And then number three, Christians are hypocritical. And we covered that a couple weeks ago as well. So we've looked at hypocrisy. We've looked at science. And this morning, we want to answer the objection. Aren't Christians judgmental? Aren't they arrogant? Don't they judge everybody else? Aren't they exclusivistic? Isn't it arrogant to say there's only one true religion and it just so happens to be yours? Why are Christians so intolerant? How can you say you're the only ones going to heaven? And this is at odds with contemporary cultural climate because pluralism is the air we breathe today. And pluralism is the view that really all views are equally valid. It's very similar to relativism. Truth is relative to you or your culture. And so whatever works for you is true for you. And whatever feels good for you is true for you. Something else may be true for me. And again, this is just the air we breathe. This has been taught on college campuses for some 25, 35 years. It is just the assumption. It's held by many. And it's not new. Gandhi himself said this. Gandhi said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Or that great American theologian Oprah put it this way. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths to God. And so how do we respond? And I want to first, let's own something as Christians. Let's be clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. I need to say this because there are increasing numbers of people who claim to be Christians who are compromising on hard truths like these. And so people who try to make the Bible say, actually, there's more, even, again, Christians. And so there's a, a few views that I consider heresy. One is called uh, inclusivism, and it's the idea that Jesus saves everybody whether or not they know it. He's the Savior of every single person, and regardless of whether or not they trust Christ. That's gaining popularity. Some popular teachers you may have heard of that hold that are Tony Campolo or sadly even Billy Graham towards the end of his life affirmed inclusivism. Then there's another view that's really the same. It just takes Christ out of the picture and that's exclusive. I mean, excuse me, universalism. And that is everybody will be saved. Regardless, you know, Christ, Christ doesn't matter. Every single person will be saved. And again, there are some within the church saying the Bible teaches these things. And so I just want to, before we get into this, own the fact, as we'll see, the Bible's very clear that Christianity is exclusive. But this is not intolerance. Tolerance, it's really got a new definition. The true sense of the word, it comes from a Latin word that means to bear something harmful or contrary. And so it's to gently bear another in love even when you don't agree. So tolerance historically has been defined as not accepting every view as true, but it's treating those we disagree with with humility and with civility. It's not to dismiss the reality of truth. It's the way it's defined today. If you disagree with anybody, well, you're intolerant. It's not what the word has always meant. It's to be kind and, and respectful toward those with whom you disagree. So what we need to dismiss is not truth. We need to disagree, but do it with civility. You may be 
You may not be right, but you have a right to express your views. That's what historically tolerance means. So I want us to respond then to this with four, four ways. And the first is to affirm that all people are exclusive. We've got to realize people who say that all of your little doctrines, they don't matter. That itself is a doctrine. It's the doctrine that says doctrine doesn't matter. To say there's no absolute truth is a declaration of absolute truth. All people end up being exclusive. So some atheists would say, well, you know, religion will always be around, unfortunately, but it's just built on social conditions. So you happen to be raised here, and so religion worked for you, and religion helps the evolutionary process, so that's why we have religion. But it's, over here, it's different. It's socially conditioned to be different. The problem is, again, that backfires because he, the person is only a pluralist because of their social conditions, if that's the case. Or sometimes you'll hear an objection. If you grew up in Saudi Arabia, there's no way you'd be a Christian. And the response needs to be, there's no way you'd be a pluralist because pluralism actually is a very new view that most people in the world do not hold to. We've got to see that all people are exclusive about our thoughts, especially religion, just in different ways. And all religions are exclusive. So Islam is exclusive, Buddhism is exclusive, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. And you say, exactly, that's why I'm not religious. But here's where even an atheist is exclusive. Remember what Oprah said? There are many diverse paths leading to God. Footnote, I'm inclined to agree. The question is, which one will actually lead somewhere? In a footnote. But how does she know that? What holy book did she read that from? That's actually quite arrogant. The world's religions actually contradict one another in major ways. And so who are you, Oprah or Gandhi, to dismiss all these other holy books and just lump them all together? That's crazy. Arrogant. Don't worry, Israeli Jew. Don't, don't fret, Palestinian Muslim. I know your parents lost their lives over the differences between your religions. I know that you could swim in the blood that's been shed over your differences. Don't fret. There's really no difference at all. They're all equal. This is a uniquely Western view. Most of the world does not now and has not ever held to pluralism. They're different. You can't just lump them all together. Just to take one example, the most important example, consider the ways different people talk about the person of Jesus. Buddhism says Jesus was just an enlightened man like Buddha. Hindus say he was an incarnation of God like Krishna. Islam says he was a mere man and a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah's Witness say he was merely the archangel Michael, a created being who became a man. Mormons teach that Jesus was only a man who became one of many gods, that he was a polygamist and that he had a half-brother named Lucifer. New Age guru Deepak Chopra says Jesus is a state of consciousness we can all aspire to. Scientology says he was an implant forced on Thetan a million years ago. I don't even know what that means exactly. <laughs> but Christians believe he's God incarnate who came to redeem sinners through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Those views are worlds apart, aren't they? And so how can any intelligent person just dismiss them and say, yeah, they're all basically the same? That's ignorance. And it's arrogance. 
And some people use the analogy of the elephant. I mentioned it before. You've got an elephant and you've got four blind men. And basically the four blind men are different religions of the world. So you've got your elephant and so you've got one of your blind men on the, on the leg of the elephant. And he's like, this is, this is like a, a tree trunk. Then you've got the guy on the back, on the tail. And he says, no, no, it's more like a whip. Then you've got one guy you know, on the side, just filling the side. And no, it's like a large wall. And so the atheist says, that's like religion. They're just trying to do their best. They're just trying to describe reality from their own little limited viewpoint. But none can see the big picture. But that is an extremely arrogant analogy, isn't it? Why? Because who has the God's eye viewpoint? Who's the one that's not blind in the analogy? Well, the atheist who's got the full picture and is able to say, well, that little poor religion doesn't see it. That little poor religion doesn't see it. These are just religious people trying to grasp the truth. The atheist storyteller is the one who can see it all. He's not blind like these little poor pathetic religions. He can see the whole thing. It's extremely arrogant. Here's how one author put it. He's using satire here. And he says this. He says, Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Mohammed, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth, end quote. And so the Oprah view is actually exclusive to others. It says, your arrogance, if you don't agree with me, that all views are the same and none are to be excluded. It ends up being exclusive of any view that is exclusive. It doesn't work. And we need to push on it because that's often said, well, we're all the same. Well, hold on. Like, you don't really believe that all religions are the same, do you? I mean, usually they're thinking of Christianity, Islam, some of the big ones, but that's not what they say. They say all religions. Well, really, do we really believe they're all the same? Do we believe things like the fundamentalist church, Latter-day Saints, FLDS, that with their polygamy, we believe that's the same? Or what about, what about Amorite religions where they sacrifice their infants and use their arms as drumsticks? Is that the same? as Christianity? What about Waco, David Koresh? What about Jim Jones in the People's Temple drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, killing 918 people, 304 of which were kids? Can you believe that's the same? What about the prosperity gospel? In the name of Christianity, these people using the money of their adherents to go and buy things like $50 million jets and whatnot. Is that the same? Are these all just equally valid and equally true? No, you don't actually believe that. All people are exclusive. It's just in different ways. That's the first point. We're all exclusive. It's just in different ways. The second way to respond is that Christians follow Christ. Should be obvious, right? Should be redundant. But a Christian, by definition, is one who follows Christ. Which is, by the way, why we make such a big deal out of knowing your Bibles. If a Christian is one called to follow Christ, we must know his word in order to follow him. So we follow him in life and we follow him in truth. We are disciples. We are learners of him. I want us to look together in John chapter 14. If you're 
using a pew Bible. It's page 85 on the second half. Let's read John 14 together. Gospel of John, chapter 14, look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus really could not be more clear. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. And just for the context, look at John chapter 14, verse 2. He says, this is Jesus. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. He's talking about the way to heaven. He's talking about the way to the Father's house here. And he says he is the truth. Truth at the end of the day is a person. You want to know what's right? Look at Jesus. He is the truth, which speaks to his complete reliability in all he does. It's because of who he is. He's God made flesh. Keep your finger in John. Let's flip over to the first chapter. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 3. Let's just start at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He is God Himself. The Word was God. Look down at chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look there at John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has made God known. That word there is the word where we get our word exegesis. The Son is the exegesis of the Father. The Son is the explanation of the Father. Jesus is the self-disclosure of God himself, which is why he is the truth. Flip over a couple pages to John chapter 5. He is the one to whom the scriptures point. John chapter 5, verse 39 He is the truth. He says to the leaders there in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Jesus just said the Old Testament scriptures are about him. He says the same thing there in John chapter 5, verse 46. If you believed Moses, speaking about what Moses wrote, the law, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me for he 
wrote of me. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the life. He is where life is found. Life is found in Christ. Did you notice the way he said that there in those first verses? Look back at John chapter 1. He's the life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And actually, the language Jesus is using here is extremely significant. If you knew your Old Testament Bibles the way most of his audience would, it's a grand claim. It is a claim of divinity. These little words, I am. Let me flip back to Exodus chapter 3. It's where God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. Let me just read Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask... What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The word is ego me. It's the name of God. In the gospel of John, seven different times, Jesus uses this name, ego me. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. He says here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a grand claim. And then he says right after that, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one, he says. It's a universal negation. No one will get to the Father except by way of Jesus. No one gets to God apart from the Son. This verse could not be clearer. There's no way to make it say something else. And it's Jesus who says it, not the followers of Jesus. Christians follow Christ. He says stuff like this all the time. Let me read from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At the same time, at that time, Jesus declared, I, we have a prayer here. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Isn't that a staggering statement? Let me read it again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's a grand claim. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. And so Jesus himself is very clear about the fact that no one gets to the Father except through him. 
And Christians believe Jesus is Lord of Lords. Like what Jesus says goes for us. He's our Lord, both in our life and what we believe. We wouldn't be faithful followers of Jesus if we didn't take what he says with utmost seriousness. Jesus is the one who claimed exclusivity. Jesus is the one who claimed universal authority. And so you can't blame Christians for taking the claims of Jesus seriously. Can't blame Christians for following Jesus. He's the one who made these outlandish, outrageous claims if he's not who he said he was. Let me just read a few more from, we'll just stick with John for a minute. John 3.18, notice what he says. Whoever believes in Jesus and him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here Jesus is very clear. You must believe in him. If you don't, you're condemned. John chapter 8. If you're in the Gospel of John, you can just keep flipping with me. John 8, 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I mean, isn't that clear? It's hard to swallow, but it's easy to understand. It's Jesus making these claims. Flip over a couple chapters to John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. He said it. Back to our passage, John chapter 14. Reading a little further, let me just look at verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus is the one who makes these unique claims. He's the one who said he is the way. He's the one who said no one can get to the Father except through him. And so he went around telling people stuff like, your sins are forgiven. What man can do that? No other religious leader says things like that. Speaking to a paralytic, he says, which is easier for me to do? Say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. I can do either. I can do both. He's the one who said all authority has been given to him. He's the one who said he would live forever. No other religious founders claimed anything like this. If this is not true, Jesus is crazy. <laughs> no one says stuff like this. This is where C.S. Lewis is so helpful and says we don't really have the option. Sometimes you'll run into people. Well, he was a good teacher. Jesus was a good teacher. I remember on a college campus bumping into a girl who didn't know the Lord and started talking about Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus' teaching. I don't know, the church and Christianity and all that, but Jesus, he's a good teacher. And I'm like, clearly you haven't read the teaching of Jesus. Because if this stuff's not true, he's nuts. That's what C.S. Lewis says. We don't really have the option to say he's a good moral teacher. Either he is who he said he is, or he's crazy. He's a lunatic because human beings don't say things like this. Or he's just a liar. He just made it up. And so that's the alternatives we have. You can't really dismiss them in any other way and try to speak highly of them. He is a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord, who he claimed to be. And Scripture everywhere speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus. Let me just read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and this is incredible, and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is unique. Philippians 2 says that one day every knee will bow. That's just an incredible statement. Every knee that has ever been created will one day bow. Every tongue that has ever existed will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He is utterly unique. He fulfilled hundreds of ancient prophecies. He spoke like no one else. As one with authority, he healed the sick. He walked on water, raised people from the dead, ruled over nature, died on a cross, rose from the dead, walking out of the tomb. And so don't blame Christians for following Christ. Don't call us narrow-minded. Call him narrow-minded. We're just following him. And the third way to respond is it's not that we think we are better as Christians. This is actually really important. Is Christianity, are Christians exclusive? Yeah, because Jesus was exclusive. Are Christians arrogant? No, at least they had not better be. And if they are, they're out of line with the teaching of their Lord. Every other religion says something like this. It says something like, do these things and you'll get to heaven. In other words, be good. Be a good person and you will get to heaven. Be better than others. And so in this sense, Christianity is not arrogant. It's actually a voice of humility surrounded by arrogance. You know, oftentimes if you'll talk with with an unbeliever. One, one way to talk with unbelievers is just to ask them questions. We need to do a lot better job of listening, but also following the method of our Lord. Just ask them questions. Ask them what they think or why they think what they think. And one of the things you say, do you believe anybody's going to hell? Usually, I, I don't know. I don't know. What about guys like Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're going to go to hell. Okay, how come? Why do, you, why do you think that? Well, you know, clearly, do you know what they did? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just curious why you think that. Yeah, well, look what they did. They were just terrible people. Well, do you think you'll go to hell? No, I don't think so. Well, why not? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm no Hitler. Well, I hope not. Well, why else? Well, I, I mean, you know, I mess up. No one's perfect. Everybody's human. But I, I think, you know, I've done some good things. I try to be good. And at the end of the day, it boils down to saying, I'm going to be in heaven and others aren't because I'm better. My, good, my goodness outweighs my badness. But Christianity doesn't say anything like that. Christianity says there ain't no one good enough. This is what we're not saying we're better than anybody. No, we're actually worse. We know that. We know we are sinners. We know we are hypocrites. We know we need forgiveness. That's why we're in this thing. We know that no one is good enough on their own. No one earns their reward. No one gets to heaven because of them. It's by humbly accepting the gift. And part of it, the humility is knowing we are sinners. We know that. That's why we're just saying, out of my shame, out of the dead of night, into a hope, into your marvelous light, it's your mercy. We don't deserve your mercy. Mercy is God withholding from us what we deserve. We wouldn't dare say we're going to heaven because we're better. 
I would be Hitler or Dahmer if it wasn't for the grace of God. I'm capable of anything that any sinner is capable of. It's only by sheer grace. And so there should be no arrogance among Christians. It just doesn't make sense. It should be a voice of humility. Because other religions actually teach that they are better than others. And we know we're not. We run to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Here's how Tim Keller put it. He says, most religions and philosophies of life assume that one's spiritual status depends on your religious attainments. This naturally leads adherents to feel superior to those who don't believe and behave as they do. The Christian gospel, in any case, should not have that effect. Because we're no, we know we're no better. We just know where we find life. And then finally, fourth way to respond is that the uniqueness of the cross demands exclusivity. Because we know we are guilty. We know we are sinners. We know that God has revealed himself to be holy. Someone must bridge the gap. Someone must make atonement. And only Jesus is the Savior. Only God made flesh can make an adequate sacrifice. Other religions provide no Savior. They provide no sacrifice and ultimately no forgiveness and ultimately no salvation. But the cross takes seriously both God's holiness and our sin. Jesus bears the penalty we deserve on the cross, satisfying the wrath of a holy God and freeing us from the debts. If we can make it to God on our own, there would be no need for a cross. This is why the cross demands it. If we could get good enough, if we could climb that ladder, there would be no need for grace. There would be no need for a cross. That's why Paul puts it in Galatians. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness, a right standing that we all need, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The cross demands exclusivity. And it's because of the uniqueness of, the Christ, of Christ on the cross that we must agree that there is salvation found in no one else. In fact, turn over to the book of Acts chapter 4. Page 95 if you're in the Pew Bible. And just think about the context here for a minute. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church. So Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out. This is very early in the life of the church. Let's just read the first couple of verses there. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. It's actually a quote from Psalm 118. And the cornerstone was that most important stone. It's that stone that bears the weight of the rest of the construction. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the main thing. He is the key figure in God's plan of salvation. Look at the verse right after that there, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, just appreciate the clarity for a moment. There's really no way to make this verse say anything else than it says. 
Peter's so clear here. There is salvation in no one else. It's like Peter's Lord said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then notice Peter gives the reason. He says, for, because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name under heaven. That means in all of creation, there is no other name, no other person, no other way. None of them lead to salvation because none of them are Jesus. None of them are God in the flesh. None of them can make an adequate sacrifice. None of them have died a substitutionary death for sinners and walked out of the tomb. Only Jesus can save. And I realize this is not politically correct, increasingly so. Bugs a lot of people. But let me just encourage you, if that's you, to consider the claims of Christ. Consider what is true not just what happens to fit our current cultural norms. It's not about how you feel. It's about what's real. It's about what's true outside of us. I'm all for open minds, and we love questions here at Southside, but open minds, we don't want to have them so open that our brains fall out. Chesterton said, an open mind is like an open mouth. It's meant to come down on something. At some point, I love the way Chesterton put it. He says, what we, and this was, this was 100 years ago, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself and undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. So true, isn't it? Now we're not doubtful at all about ourselves, but we are, un, un, we are doubtful about the truth. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me challenge you. Consider his claims. Pursue truth. Because if he's right, if he is who he said he is, it's the most important decision in the world. As I said in Philippians 2, as Paul says in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow, including yours. Your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question for you is, will you bow now and confess now in joyful submission? That's the invitation today. Or will you bow later in judgment when it's too late? But with as much urgency as I can muster, you need to hear, you will bow. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the only way. And if you're a follower of Christ, let me encourage you, don't soften this message. This won't win friends and influence people. But it's the truth, so be bold. 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Do not be ashamed. You'll get mocked, you'll get ridiculed, you'll get called names. So did Jesus, and so did the early church. Be bold, but be humble, because it's not like we're any better. We're all beggars. We just happen to be the ones that have found bread trying to tell other beggars where to find it. Be bold, but be humble. We're just nobodies trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. So be bold, be humble, and be urgent. This truth ought to inspire urgency for the people of God, urgency in how we pray, urgency in how we give, how we use the resources God has given to us to steward, urgency in how we live. God has graciously shown us the way.
This good news came to us because it's on its way to somebody else or should be. So is Christianity exclusive? Yes. Arrogant? Not if we're being biblical. But the word is clear. Jesus Christ alone rightly bears the title Savior of the world. As we close, let me quote these words from Thomas Akempis from a few hundred years ago. He says, reflecting on these verses, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated.